us. Let's read together. Daniel chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, Lord, I pray that you open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up to you other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray that you draw them to a place of repentance. Lord, I especially want to pray for sons and daughters who have wandered away from the faith. They've taken another path. I just ask that you'll send the Holy Spirit after them. Draw them to a place of repentance. Don't let one of them be lost, I ask. I pray these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 605 BC, a young crown prince of the Babylonian Empire became commander in chief of the armies of Babylon. In the spring of that year, he marched his armies through Assyria and then on through Syria and Palestine, conquering everyone and everything in his path. By the year 597 BC, he began to invade Judah and then Jerusalem. On March 16, 597 BC, after a long siege, this crown prince, now king of Babylon, accepted the total surrender of Judah and Jerusalem by King Jehoiakim. This ambitious Babylonian king would go on to reign over the most powerful empire in the world at that time for the next 43 years. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. During his reign, Nebuchadnezzar built the capital city of Babylon into the most formidable fortress city the world had ever known. Rectangular in shape, it rose impressively above the desert in the land we now know as Iraq. The mighty Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city. The city was surrounded by 56 miles of double walls. The outer walls were 21 feet thick and 300 feet tall. There were 250 watchtowers over 400 feet tall on that wall. Every one of them was spaced 60 feet from the other one. The inner walls were 11 feet thick, 300 feet tall, and extended 35 feet below ground. Some of the water from the Euphrates was diverted to form a moat around these mighty walls. The city had eight gates, all of them impressive, but the most notable and famous was the Ishtar Gate, 
unlike the other gates, which were made of stone, the Ishtar gate was made of beautiful blue lazuli tile. As you passed through the Ishtar gate, you entered one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built for his homesick queen. You would never expect to find a, a beautiful forest-covered mountain in the middle of a fortress city in the desert, but there it was, a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's great wealth, power, and determination. In the center of the city was a beautiful bridge supported by massive brick pillars that linked the old part of the city with the new. Towering over this bridge was a massive 30-story building called the Ziggurat. On top of the Ziggurat was a temple devoted to Marduk, one of the many gods of the Babylonians. For that period of time, there was no other city on earth as impressive or as spectacular as the capital city of Babylon. It was the custom of King Nebuchadnezzar to take the finest things from every land that he conquered and bring them to his palace. This included the finest of the children that he had taken as slaves. The Bible records for us the names of four of those children. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. They were of royal blood, the strongest, healthiest, and best-looking young men in the kingdom of Judah. They were among the brightest and best of their age group. At the time of their capture, they were at a most impressionable age, between 14 and 16 years old. When Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, these elite young boys were bound in chains. Then they were emasculated, made eunuchs so they couldn't procreate. To say these young men were traumatized is a gross understatement. Their family members had been brutally murdered before their eyes. Their homes had been plundered and burned. Their bodies had been mutilated. The temple that bore witness to the God who had led the Hebrew people to this land was set ablaze and burned to the ground. Not only were they traumatized, but they were then transported to a land that was foreign in every way. Customs, language, architecture, food, nothing was familiar. Depending on the route taken, it was anywhere from about 500 to almost 900 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon and could have taken up to four months of travel. Transporting this group was done by a long, tedious, tiring, brutal march across desert sand, shackled to one another with ropes and chains, with many of their friends perishing along the way. Nebuchadnezzar had plans for these young men. In three years, he planned to train them and to turn them into fine, upstanding model Babylonians. They would live in the palace of the king. They would eat at the king's table. They would receive the best instruction at the feet of the king's counselors. They would have all the advantages of Babylonian royalty, even though they were Hebrew slaves. For the next three years... They would be surrounded by the intoxicating beauty and splendor of the most powerful and wealthiest city in the world. The indoctrination began almost immediately with a change in their names. 
The name Daniel is, is a good Jewish name that means Jehovah is my judge. But as a captive in Babylon, he was given the name Belteshazzar, meaning Bel, who was the chief god of the Babylonians. Bel, protect his life. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, meaning command of the moon god, a Q. Mishael, meaning who is like Jehovah, was changed to Meshach, meaning the servant of sin. Azariah, meaning Jehovah is my helper, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo, the Babylonian god of wisdom. It was the aim of the Babylonians to totally immerse their captives in the lifestyle and the culture of Babylon. They said, we're going to train you, teach you, indoctrinate you, change your behavior, change your priorities, change your outlook. We'll change the way you dress. We'll change the way you look. We'll change your diet. We'll change your speech. We'll change your name. We'll give you a new identity. We're going to completely change who you are and in the process, change your destiny. Now, I'd just like to hit the pause button in the message for a moment to tell you that even though you may not have experienced trauma and terror to the extent that these boys did, there is still a spirit in this world that is trying to do the same kind of thing to the people of God as was done to these young men of Israel. This spiritual enemy is still doing everything in his power to squeeze you into conformity with the prevailing culture that is opposed to the will and the purposes of God. He's still doing everything he can to entice you to embrace a path of immediate gratification that ignores eternal consequences. He's still doing his best to bombard you with an attack that will cause you to question and even to deny your spiritual identity. He's trying to steal your strength, steal your vitality, your future, your destiny, and your identity. But what the Lord would want you to remember today is that you are in this world, but you are not of this world. See, you may be in a dark place right now, but he would remind you in Matthew 5, 16 that you are the light of the world. So no matter how dark it is around you and no matter how the darkness closes in on you, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He would remind you in Ephesians 5 and 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children children of light. He would remind you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor, nor swindlers, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, such were some of you. But, aren't you glad that word is there? But you were washed. 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, this world will try to put all kinds of labels on you, but as a believer, your true identity isn't what the world says. It's not what your peers say. It's not what your family says. It's certainly not what your spiritual enemy says. Your true identity is what God Almighty declares about you in his word. God declares in Genesis 1 and 27 that you are created in his divine image. God says in Deuteronomy 28 and 13 that you are the head and not the tail. God says in Galatians 3 and 13 that you are redeemed from the curse of the law. God says in Romans 15 and 17 that you are accepted in the beloved. God says you are justified righteous. God says you are sanctified holy. God says you are forgiven completely. God God says you are loved unconditionally. God says you're an heir of righteousness. God says you're marked for blessing and you're highly favored. God says you're designed for success. God says you are more than a conqueror. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know. You, you may dwell in a dark place, and you may work in the midst of an unregenerate people, but don't you ever forget who you really are. They may call you uncomplimentary and derogatory names. As a follower of Jesus in our present climate of this world, you may be labeled as bigoted and intolerant and narrow-minded. But God calls you my child. He calls you apple of my eye. Don't ever lose sight of who you really are. Don't ever lose your true identity. See, right in the very first chapter of the book of Daniel, we see these four young men at a crossroads that becomes a defining moment. I don't know, but I would... In my imagination, I would imagine that their first meal at the palace had to be a spectacular and, and bewildering experience as they were invited to sit and eat at fancy tables covered with the finest cuts of meat and the best fruits and vegetables off the finest china. There were platters just overflowing with exotic food from around the Middle East and the Orient. And after all the atrocities they had endured from their capture and exile, I'm certain that the temptation to indulge was very real. I mean, why wouldn't they eat and drink from the king's table? Everything they had known and loved had been stripped away from them. They were ripped from their families and exiled from their homeland. The, the temple, the symbol of their faith was destroyed. It seemed like God had let them down. After all they'd been through, they, they surely deserved something nice for a change. It, it was a defining moment. Daniel becomes the spokesman for the group. And the Bible says in verse 8 of chapter 1, that Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So they requested the only things they knew were safe for an observant kosher Jew to eat and drink, vegetables and water. 
And then they invited the person in charge to put them to the test for 10 days. They would serve God, they would observe his commands, and they'd trust the outcome to him. Oh, you remember the story, how that at the end of those 10 days, they were healthier and smarter and sharper than all the other captives. Their choice to trust God set the course for the rest of their lives. Daniel, you remember, was given a special ability to interpret dreams. And in chapter 2, this ability thrusts him into the spotlight. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a giant statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet that are, are iron mixed with clay. The dream troubles him, but at the same time, he's so troubled he can't remember what the dream was. And so he calls for all the wise men and all the soothsayers of his kingdom. And he brings them in and says, I want you to interpret my dream. And they said, well, tell us the dream. He said, I don't remember it. They said, well, we've got a problem, king. He said, no, you have a problem. Because you have to tell me the dream first. And that way I'll know when you give me the interpretation that it's the right one. Well, in all the kingdom, there was no one found able to do this until word reaches Daniel. After he and his friends pray, the Lord reveals to Daniel both the dream and its interpretation. And if he, as he goes into the king and gives it, it causes Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge Daniel's God in verse 47 of chapter 2 as God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Daniel is given gifts. He's promoted as chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Then at Daniel's request, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're also given positions of administrative prominence. It seems like all the bad stuff is behind them and everything is turning out to be favorable for these young captives. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom are identified as the head of gold. But by chapter 3, it seems Nebuchadnezzar isn't content just being the head of gold. He wants to be the entire statue. So he has a giant 90 foot tall by 9 feet wide statue constructed on the plain of Dura. Nebuchadnezzar's ego is on full display as he then demands a special composition be written for the royal orchestra and he issues a decree for all the people of the land to assemble on the plain of Dura for a grand worship celebration. At the sound of the music from the royal orchestra on this day of worship, everyone was commanded to bow the knee before this golden image. You see, every nation that was exiled to, to Babylon brought with them their various deities and their practices of worship. So the king made a rule that the people could worship anybody or anything they wanted, or they could not worship if they wanted. They could believe or not believe anything they wanted. They could worship the gods of the culture from which they came, but they must recognize Nebuchadnezzar as the supreme authority in their life. Now, most of the people were quite happy to comply with this new decree because it meant they didn't have to give up their own brand of religion. At the same time, there was great fear because the same decree said that the consequences for disobeying the command was to be thrown into the furnace that had been used for smelting the gold that had been used in creating the idol. Everybody seemed willing to go along 
except the three young men who are the central characters of chapter 3. The Bible doesn't say where Daniel is when these events occurred. Speculation has it that he's away in another place, perhaps acting as an emissary for King Nebuchadnezzar. But in this chapter, the focus is on his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we more commonly know them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And there are three things I want to show you about this defining moment in their life that have a direct bearing on how you live your life as a follower of Jesus today. First of all, I want you to see an uncompromising dedication. This, um, this new decree of the king absolutely flew in the face of the very first commandment by which these boys lived. The command where Jehovah had said, you shall have no other gods before me. When the orchestra began to play, everybody fell to their knees except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood erect in the midst of the plain of Dura all alone. Do you know how hard it is to swim against the current? Do you know how hard it is to go contrary to public opinion? Do you know how hard it is to stand tall when everybody else is bowing down? Yet here these young teenage boys stood. When news of their insubordination reached the king, he was beside himself with rage. How dare they challenge his authority? How dare they disobey his command? How dare they publicly insult him after all he had done for them? Surely they must have misunderstood. So he calls them in to give them another chance to comply. He implores them to rethink their position. And he threatens them with dire consequences if they continue to rebel. Well, verse 16 tells you about their uncompromising dedication. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. You know what they're saying? They're saying, we don't even have to think about this. Watch this. They, they, they didn't have to go pray about what they were supposed to do. They didn't have to get together, huddle up in a corner to develop a response. They didn't have to take an opinion poll to find out the best option. They didn't have to call the pastor for a counseling session. They had already decided what they were going to do in the crisis before the crisis ever came. They had a made-up mind. No matter what the consequences, we're going to serve the Lord. He's going to be first in our lives. We're only going to worship Him. Now, what I found, what I found is that most people don't live by conviction. They live by preference. Consequently, when the path looks difficult... They take the easy way instead of the best way. They take the expedient way or the way of least resistance or the way everybody else is going instead of going God's way. Somebody listening to this message needs to make up your mind that you're going to be God's man or God's woman no matter what kind of pressure comes your way. You need to decide what to do before 
the moment of crisis comes so that when the moment of crisis comes, you won't have to make a hasty and often wrong decision. Let let me tell you, you can't wait until you're in the middle of the temptation to decide how you're going to handle it. You can't. You'll always take the wrong path. If you make up your mind that you're not going to cheat anybody, then when the temptation comes to cheat, it won't even be an option. If you make up your mind you're not going to commit adultery, when the temptation comes, you've already decided how you're going to react, that door will be closed. If you make up your mind you're going to serve God, then when you're tempted to shove him aside and follow the crowd, you'll not think twice about being a faithful servant of the Lord. Somebody needs to make up your mind that you're going to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Somebody needs to make up your mind you're going to do what's right even if everybody else is doing what's wrong. Somebody needs to make up your mind that you're going to focus on the eternal and not on the temporal. Somebody needs to make up your mind that God's word is true and God's way is right and you're going to follow it until the end of your days. It's an uncompromising dedication. I'll tell you something else about these boys. They had an unshaken dependency. That's what it's talking about, verses 17 and 18, when they say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This this was no bargaining with God. This wasn't a case of, Lord, get us out of this. If you get us out of this, then we'll serve you. Oh, no. no. It was, Lord, we're going to serve you whether you get us out of it or not. We trust you to do the right thing by us. You're going to deliver us out of the hand of this wicked king one way or the other. See, if we escape the furnace, we'll be delivered. If we die in the furnace, we'll still be delivered. Either way, this king doesn't have the final word over our life. Only God has the final word over our life. If they died, they'd spend eternity with God. If they lived, the king's wrath was ineffective. Kill their body and their souls were free. Spare their bodies and they were delivered from death. In the face of seemingly impossible odds, they threw their lot in with the Lord. They decided that no matter what, they would trust the Lord. They had an unshaken dependency upon the Lord. This is the essence of trust. And I got to this point as I was praying and writing this message, and I got to this point and I said, I I just wonder, I just wonder how many of you really trust the Lord. Oh, I know you trust him in the brightness of the noonday. But do you still trust him in the darkness of the midnight hour? I know you trust him on the mountaintop, but do you still trust him in the valley? I know you trust him in the oasis, but do you still trust him in the desert? I know you trust him in the calm, but do you still trust him in the crisis? I I know you trust him when you're supported, but do you still trust him when you've been let down? I know you trust him when you're promoted, 
But do you still trust him when you've been rejected? I know you trust him when you're encouraged, but do you still trust him when you're disappointed? I know you trust him when you've been recognized, but do you still trust him when you've been overlooked? I know you trust him when you're successful, but do you still trust him when life doesn't turn out the way you want? I know you trust him when the bills are paid, but do you still trust him when the loan doesn't go through? I know you trust him when your home is peaceful, but do you still trust him when trouble comes knocking on your door? I know you trust him when the children are obedient, but do you still trust him when your child drops out and makes bad choices? I know you trust him when the marriage is solid, but do you still trust him when the spouse walks out? I know you trust him when you're healthy, but do you still trust him in the doctor's office? I know you trust him when everything's in your favor, but do you still trust him in the courtroom? I know you trust him when your loved one recovers, but do you still trust him at the graveside? I'm talking about an unshaken dependency. This is the dependency of Job in chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the dependency of 2 Timothy 1 and 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. This is the dependency of Philippians 1 and 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is the dependency of Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the dependency of Psalm 32 and 7. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Oh, I wish I had somebody that is going through a difficult season right now who would just make up your mind that no matter what, you're going to trust the Lord. You see, um, it's that uncompromising dedication and that unshaken dependency that led to an undeniable deliverance. When you read on through the rest of the story, you discover the three boys didn't bow. The king then followed through with his threat, and in his anger, he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. Then the boys were bound and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And the Bible says the furnace was so hot that the guards who threw the boys into the fire were killed by the flames that leaped out when the doors were opened. <laughs> it looked like the end for the stubborn Hebrew boys. It looked like God had failed them. It looked like their determination to serve the Lord had caused their demise. Ah. But getting thrown into the fire isn't the end of the story. Listen to verses 24 and 25. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded 
stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God didn't keep them out of the furnace. He joined them in it. He didn't keep them out of the fire. He took them through the fire. He didn't deliver them from the fiery furnace. He delivered them in the fiery furnace. Ah! I, I, I want to tell somebody today that when the devil turns up the heat, God turns up the protection. Is that good? Is that good? These boys were thrown into the fire, but when the king saw them, they were loosed. They were bound when he threw them in, but when he looked over, they're loosed. Listen, the only effect the fire had was to burn up that which had them in bondage. When you're in the fire, the only thing the fire will do is burn up that which is keeping you bound. Hear me today when I tell you, you may have to go through some stuff. But when your trust is in the Lord, he will bring you out. And when he brings you out, you'll come out liberated. You'll come out free. You'll come out loosed from the bondage of those things that have held you captive. You'll come out loosed from addiction. You'll come out loosed from hurts and wounds that have been suffered at the hands of others. You'll come out loosed from fear. You'll come out loosed from guilt and condemnation. You'll come out loosed from bad memories. You'll come out loosed from failures. You'll come out loosed from insecurity. You'll come out loosed from the expectations of others and the need for affirmation. You'll come out loosed from dependency upon your own self-righteousness or upon your family pedigree or upon your academic achievements or upon your professional accomplishments or upon your material possessions or your religious traditions. You need never be afraid of the fire because the Lord will be with you in the fire. I got one more thing I want to show you. Boy, there's so much here. I, I, I can't unpack it all, but let me just show you one more thing. When Nebuchadnezzar was making his threat against the Hebrew boys, he said in verse 15, he said, if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, this next section, this next statement is what a lot of people just read over and they don't pay any attention to. But, but, but this is so important, what he asks. He says, if you don't bow, you're, I'm going to throw you in the fire. If you don't bow, I'm going to fire you. And I do mean fire you. <clears throat> he says, and what, watch this, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Tell, tell me, boys, who is the God who will deliver you? I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer in verse 17. Our 
God. Our God. Our God. I want to suggest to you today that if you're worried, if you're worried that the God you serve isn't capable of delivering you from the fire, you need to get you another God. See, this universe and everything in it was formed from the creative imagination of my God. My God holds everything in this world in precise order and keeps it from collapsing by the word of his power. My God declares a thing to be so, and it is done. My God is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My God rides upon the wind and sits upon the flood. My God is a covenant-keeping God. My God is a prayer-answering God. My God is faithful and true. My God always gives his best to those who put their trust in him. My God never fails. My God rescues those who cry to him for help. My God provides for those who have exhausted their resources. My God shelters those who run to him for safety. My God is a way maker. My God is a peace speaker. My God is a burden bearer. My God is a water walker. My God is a sight restorer. My God is a broken heart mender. When you're down, my God will pick you up. When you're grieving, my God will comfort you. When you're sick, my God will heal you. When you're forsaken, my God will stick with you. When you're lost, my God will guide you. When you're bound, my God will set you free. When you're too weak to go another step, my God will carry you. This is a God you can trust. You can trust him. Let me tell you this and I'm going to quit. John... Chrysostom was one of the early church fathers who lived in the late 4th and early 5th century. One day he was brought before the emperor and commanded to renounce Christ. The emperor threatened him saying if he would not renounce Christ he would be banished from the country forever. He would be separated from his father's land for the rest of his life. John looked at him and responded, you cannot the whole world is my father's land. You cannot banish me. The emperor then said, then I will take away all of your property and treasures. John replied, you cannot, for all my true treasures are in heaven. The emperor then said, I will send you to a place of absolute solitude where there is not one friend for you to talk to. John said, you cannot, for I have a friend that is closer than a brother to me. He is my elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has promised to be with me always, even to the end of the age. In anger, the emperor then said, I will then take your life. John said, you cannot, for my life is forever hidden in Christ with God. I want to tell you, this is the kind of trust that brings the deliverance I've been preaching about today. There's... I, got, I just have to close my Bible because there's so much more in this story I'd love to tell you about. But I'm persuaded to believe that we've come to a point of decision. And this is for somebody a defining moment. 
It's a defining moment for somebody in this house. It's a defining moment for somebody who is part of this service online. It's a time when you're being called to make a decision to trust Jesus. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, I just want to ask you, would you be willing to make up your mind that you're going to turn it all over to Jesus and just trust him? Just, just trust him. I dare you to trust him. Jesus is calling to you today. He's saying, trust me. Cast your burden on me. Release the weight of it on my shoulders. See, when you've really trusted him with it, then you don't carry the weight of it anymore. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. It doesn't mean that you, don't, you, know, that you have to like everything that's going on. But you're not bowed down and weighed down with it. You release the weight of it on his shoulders. The Lord says, let me handle it. He says, let me handle you. Trust me. See, here's what I've discovered. Sometimes we're willing to let Jesus handle the issue. But we're not always willing to let Jesus handle us. And can I just tell you that sometimes, sometimes Jesus calms the storm. And other times, Jesus calms his child. He doesn't do anything in the storm, but, but he calms us. And that comes out of that place of trust. So without any fanfare, I've preached long enough, I've preached too long. If you're ready to trust Jesus, if you've got something you say, I need to, I need to turn it over to him, I need to trust Jesus with it, just stand. Just stand. I want to trust Jesus with this. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. Now, Lord, I'm asking that you will give us the ability, the faith, and the courage to trust you, to release the weight of this onto your shoulders. Now, we'll not try to fix it. We'll not try to carry it around. We'll not try to do an end run but we'll just trust you. Lord, our preference would be that you'd take us out of the fire. But if you're going to have us go into the fire, I pray that you'll keep your promise and you'll go with us and that you'll bring us through the fire. And when you bring us through the fire, Lord, when we come out, if our trust has really been in you, our confidence is that we won't be singed, we won't be charred, we won't even smell like smoke. We won't even smell like we've been in the fire. And then you'll promote us even higher, the next step leading us to our destiny. I believe you for that, Lord. I believe you that. I believe that for the people who are joining me in this prayer right now saying, I trust you, Jesus. Why don't you just put both hands up to the Lord and just say out of your, out of your own mouth, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. I give it to you right now, Jesus.
Come on, just give it to Him. Let Him take it. Let Him deal with it. You are not alone. The Lord is with you. I said the Lord is with you. And when the Lord is with you, you you don't need anybody else. There's none greater that can be with you when the Lord is with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your assurance. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. Would you just give the Lord an ovation of praise and thanksgiving now for what he's doing in this place?